It is seemingly a month of Mars, if not a year of Mars, without significant missions to the red planet taking off unhindered by the current pandemic, and the space community raising interest and awareness about deep space exploration. It seems appropriate to have with us here on STEMcast a Mars scientist, no less. Welcome STEMcasters, friends, and space enthusiasts. Thanks for tuning in today. Our guest is a PhD candidate at the University of Colorado Boulder and someone who can certainly tell us more than a few things about the red planet. Ladies and gentlemen, say hello to Nora Asaid. Welcome to the STEMcast podcast, Nora. Happy to have you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. Awesome. So, the question off the top of my head is, how does one become a Mars scientist? But before that, uh, I'd like you to take us back to your childhood. Uh, what were you like as a child? Um, all right. I, I assume these are connected in a way. Um, but growing up, I've always been interested in knowing why things happen and what caused whatever thing I saw to happen. So I, I've always been um, a curious kid growing up. Um, and I think that that drove me to choose this option for my career to be a scientist. Um, but I also loved exploring as well and had the sense of, well, if no one's gonna answer my questions, I'm gonna go out there and find out for myself. So it was a mixture of, curiosity as well as the sense of exploration that I had. Beautiful. You know, I, I always, because we work with kids and I always tell them that curiosity can be your superpower. And it really kind of seems that way for you, at least, in that it drove you to seek out something that you were you know, passionate about even from a younger age. So that's pretty mm -hmm. cool. Thank you. So were you always good at school, though? Because... Oftentimes, uh, a lot of people assume that if science was your favorite subject or if math was your favorite subject, that uh, you know you're you're prone to doing that uh, for your you know as a career option. But was that the case for you, or or was it something different? Um, it yes, it was the case for me, but not in the sense of it just being the only thing I was interested in. Um, in school, I was pretty much interested in equal parts in both art and science. So I had, you know, I, I loved asking questions in the natural sciences and astronomy and um, wildlife science um, and all that. Like Discovery Channel was my go-to <laughs> fun thing to do. Um, but I equally had an interest in, in arts and in, in more mechanical stuff like picking apart um, random objects and then putting them back together and painting and designing things. So it wasn't only science that I had eyes on, um, but it definitely was part of the things that I was interested in. Yeah. So you touched on something important, which is, you know, when you're young, there's always this expectation that, you know, this, the child has to know exactly what is it that they want to do, you know, when, when they're like, uh, uh, 20 or 20, 25, whatever. 
But mm-hmm. the reality is, and, and this is something that I feel like is what you're, what you're, you were just saying is that when you're younger, the best thing that you can possibly do for your self-development is just to throw yourself at different things mm-hmm. and, you know, just kind of explore. Cause you know, when you're young, you want to try everything, you want to do everything. And somehow like, you know, your, your involvement and interest in art uh, intersected, I would say with, you know, the sciences. And it, it's so great that you put it that way, because like, like you said, you know, oftentimes someone would just assume that science, you know, you just have to stick to, to that for the rest of your life, but really broad, uh, you know, exploration is where it's at. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's even people who are, you know, full-fledged scientists, um, they're not necessarily strictly scientists as, as a person. They, they do other things and oftentimes their uh, passions and other topics play a part in the progress of their scientific achievements and in some senses. So um, it's definitely helpful to have that broad perspective in any career option, but especially as a scientist. Nice. Could you share with us specific experiences that proved decisive in your choice of college and career? Um, yeah, so it's uh, more than just one specific experience. It's really a culmination of all these different incidents that kind of built on each other. But if I had to pick one specific time frame, it's around when I first started um, undergrad in the UAE at the American University of Sharjah. And I really had no idea what it is that I wanted to do because I wanted to do it all and I had so many options. So I entered university as an undeclared major and decided to spend the first two year, two semesters just exploring different options. And alhamdulillah, I got lucky in that I enrolled in the Astronomy 101 class, which put me in touch with uh, Dr. Nadal Qasum, who's a great astrophysicist, um, at the American University of Sharjah. And through interacting with him in that class, I got to participate in a research project with him and he really encouraged me to um, consider, you know, going into astronomy as an option. And it kind of just, he kind of directed me in this, in this specific path towards astronomy and other things built on top of that, you know, with the Emirates Mars mission being announced and them looking for scientists to, to train and sponsor. So it, it all worked out from that moment on. Um, but yeah, I'm very, that one incident where I, I ended up in that one classroom by, by luck, I think, um, really kind of propelled me in this direction. That's great. Uh, you know, when you kind of, exp- you know, play with possibilities and not necessarily box yourself into something. And mm-hmm. I think that's, that's really important because oftentimes, um, you know, students just before applying to university, they would think that this is something that they would want to do without giving them the option of actually trying it out first to see whether they mm-hmm. want to actually invest three or four years, if not more, you know, in that pursuit. And so yeah. you know, something like an undeclared major, major uh, where you can kind of test out, a di- you know, a few different options and see where, uh, where you go from there, or maybe even like a gap year, so just to mm-hmm. try 
figure things out is very important. So again, yeah. really ties into the give yourself a little bit of room to explore and see what's out there before you box yourself in. Yeah, precisely that. Yes. Deeper into, you know, you talked about your research um, project. So I want to, I want to get into that if I may. And if you could share, you know, the challenges that you faced during your, uh, your research challenge, your research project at the Mohammed bin Rashid Space Center and, Precisely, what skills and attitudes really allowed you to push through those challenges? Um, all right, so you disconnected there for a second, but I think I heard the rest of the question. So I'm assuming you asked about my research and how, if there were any challenges, how I overcame them. Yes, exactly. Okay, so yeah, <laughs> my apologies for that. Um, yeah, um, my research project, um, the very first proper full-on research project I did uh, was through the Space Center where I came to the U.S. to try for the summer to work with a research scientists here in the U.S. at the space laboratories. Um, and that was a, a very eye-opening experience because I really got to interact with other research scientists and students and, you know, even big names in the Mars science community and it was really exciting but also very overwhelming at the same time um so i fell in love with the the concept of being a researcher by doing research for that one summer and i also realized that this is not just a stroll in the park um so until now, this is a thing I'm learning where I have to find that work-life balance where I am doing my work and I love doing research and I love doing what I do, but I have to remind myself that it is still a stressful job and it's something that I need to uh, learn how to manage. And alhamdulillah, I've learned how to, you know, control my stress and manage my time because of skills I've developed by being a research scientist and a research science student. So on that note, how do you unwind? Um, there are many things <laughs> that I try to do to help me unwind. One of the main, my main go-tos um, or two of the main go-tos are walking out in nature here, which I'm very blessed to be living so close to the mountains here in Boulder. Um, so, you know, tagging along with a friend and de-stressing by complaining to them while also enjoying the scenery. And then the other go-to is uh, I paint um, whenever I get the chance to. So I just play a podcast in the background or some music and sit down and paint for hours on end and lose myself in the process. And that kind of gives me a time to step away from science, science, science all the time. So those are my main two things that I do. I couldn't agree more about the walk in nature. Unfortunately, <laughs> I don't have, you know, the mountainous views that you probably do. <laughs> yeah. The garden will suffice because, you know, we're still on lockdown and we have to do mm -hmm. uh, the best that we can with what we have. But yeah. I totally, totally agree. Uh, you know, stepping out in nature, just reconnecting is so, so important to just unplug every now and then. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah. Yeah. You're currently doing your PhD, and if I'm getting this right, it's 
you know, you're doing it in the US where you mm -hmm. are based right now and you mm -hmm. are majoring in astrophysics and planetary science. Yes, that is correct. Would you be able to describe what a typical day in the life of a scientist, you know, dwelling in a research community, what does that look like for you? Um, so before I answer that, I just want to specifically, you know, highlight what it what kind of uh, research I do because that dictates what a typical day in the life of a scientist would be. Um, it's different based on what kind of research you're doing and I do mostly data analysis and theory work um, which means that I spend a lot of time looking at data on my computer that I get from, you know, different missions that are orbiting around Mars right now. Um, right currently I'm working on data from the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter that is orbiting Mars, looking at the atmosphere and surface. And that involves a lot of computer time. So a lot of screen time, which is in extended periods of time, very unhealthy, <laughs> but that's why I've learned to, you know, take some time, step back and um, go outside a little bit whenever I have the chance. Um, but yeah, a typical day for me would be um, is coding up something um, to, 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 to do data, data analysis with the data that I'm getting from these um, orbiters and then using that data to create models and graphs that I can then use to analyze what is going on on Mars as a planet and come up with theories. Really, my job is a storyteller. Um, I try to take what we see, and this is kind of the job of most scientists, like we take what we see and we try to make sense of it and we try to build a story around the conclusion. So we have the conclusion in front of us and we try to build a narrative that would reach that conclusion. And there's so many different narratives that would work. And we try to use what we have in front of us to build the best story. So that's kind of what we do. <laughs> that answers it. Yeah, you know, I love how you described uh, what you do as a storyteller, because oftentimes, you know, uh, you know, a storyteller would be taken exactly in, a, in its literal sense. Um, mm -hmm not necessarily be associated with a, you know, with a, a scientist, for example, but I love how you were able to blur the lines there and, mm -hmm. and see yourself as a storyteller. And, and I think, you know, just making science mainstream and, and, you know, democratizing science, if you will, so that it's common for, you know, for the everyman to understand why it's important what you do, basically. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult sometimes, especially right now, the way that science and the, the achievements and the things that we're exploring in science are very much on a day-to-day -day basis the layman wouldn't necessarily care about, but together as a collective, they're slowly enhancing our knowledge about, you know, the universe and the planets and the things we, we know about us and live in. So it's um, very much trying to take those little achievements and putting them in the grander scheme and plugging them into the bigger picture so that we understand better the world around us. Yeah, especially, you know, you, you hear often that 
uh, why, you know, why think outside of earth when we have enough problems here on earth and we have to fix mm-hmm. those before even, you know, looking elsewhere and, and thinking about uh, Mars and even colonizing Mars, etc. So what would you say to that? Um, my first thought is that this premise sets up a false choice in that we have to choose one or the other when really that's not the case. You know, we can do both. We can explore other worlds and do science on non-Earth topics like other planets and stars and galaxies and the universe and still be able to, you know, solve the problems that we are facing here on Earth. They're not necessarily mutually exclusive. And there are many instances where in our pursuit of knowledge about the solar system or in our space exploration endeavors, we've found solutions for problems here on Earth because being put into that do or die mindset of, you know, we're either going to be able to make this work or we're never going to get to that planet or we're never going to get to send humans to space. Being that mindset really makes you think outside the box and ends up giving us solutions to problems here on Earth that we wouldn't have otherwise reached. So. That's what I would have to say about that specific question. Yeah, and, and, you know, being a part of the International Mars Science Community, would you be able to tell us what's currently on the radar? Uh, you know, what scientific goals uh, and investigations need to be pursued uh, to further humanity's knowledge of Mars? Oh, boy, there's so much. <laughs> there's <laughs> really a lot that is still unanswered. Um, Every piece of knowledge that we gain about Mars comes along with a million questions that are unanswered. Um, So there's so many fronts in which you can advance the knowledge we have about uh, Mars. And, you know, you can pick your favorite part. Like if you talk about the Martian atmosphere, there's so much we still don't know, but there's still so much that we did learn in the past, you know, several orbiters that have been sent there. Um, And one of those things is, for example, the connection between um, the different parts of the atmospheres and the different, the atmosphere and the different parts of the surface and how they interact with each other. So it's really on all fronts that we can add to the picture about Mars. Currently, I think um, from NASA's perspective, especially with the recent mission that they sent um, the Perseverance rover. They're trying to answer the question about life on Mars. So that's one aspect that's still being explored. And I'm not talking about like going there and finding aliens or anything of that sort, but, you know, looking at all the potential places where life could have been and possibly um, conducive to life in the past on Mars. So those kinds of questions. Um, from the UAE's perspective, um, the front that they're trying to tackle is understanding how the atmosphere behaves as a whole, not just um, on small, limited views. So there's really so much that can happen and that you can add. So what aspects of the Martian atmosphere remain a mystery to us? Um. Okay, so I like to use this analogy because 
this is actually like how it's being done on Mars right now from what we've sent to Mars to study the Martian atmosphere there's two different kinds of um, machines I guess you could call them um, the first kind is the orbiters that orbit around Mars and the way that most of them have been orbiting Mars is to go over the pole poles of Mars and that means that they only get a view of Mars at specific times of day. So that's, for example, every 3 a.m. and 3 p.m. you get a measurement of the atmosphere. And that's kind of like telling someone to go outside at 3 a.m. and then again at 3 p.m. and only recording the temperature and wind speed and all that information for those specific times and then extrapolating to understand the entire Earth, Earth climate system. So that's a bit of a stretch. Um, and then the other option we have currently is from rovers, which can measure the atmosphere at all times of day, but only from one specific location. And that's kind of like trying to understand, you know, how the weather like is in Dubai, if I'm just checking the weather every day here in Boulder. So there's that disconnect. And um, the the missing link is to try to understand how it works as a whole by observing all parts of the atmosphere at all different kinds of uh, all different times and that's what the Emirates Mars mission will be providing inshallah once it gets there in a few months <laughs> so that's one aspect of the atmosphere that's still not very well understood and hopefully the Emirates Mars mission will help answer nice so several years back Elon mm -hmm. Musk boldly stated that a Mars colony was a doable, makeable goal. And that really sort of elevated the mainstream Martian fascination, right? So mm -hmm. my question is, do we have the next generation technology that would enable us to see that coming to fruition within our lifetime? Okay, I want to preface this with by saying that I am not an expert in this area. So uh, take everything I say with a grain of salt. Um, but from my understanding, the technology is definitely there, if not close to being there. It's just a matter of consistent effort and um, consistent investment in that area to, to really take it all the way there. So within our lifetime, I don't think it's an implausible thing to think about having you know humans settlement on mars um but that's only if you're asking me if if we're you know looking at the technology um in terms of other aspects that come into play like um like the human um the economics and politics and all that who knows um it's really a matter of getting everyone together to really put in consistent effort into making this happen. Yeah, that's absolutely fair. So what common myths are, or let's say what common myths about Mars would you like to dispel? Are there any? Um, okay, this is actually a funny one because I had a conversation recently with some of my friends about this where we were both we were both lamenting the fact that some of our distant relatives <laughs> um, and family friends 
thought that there are currently humans on Mars, which is not the case. <laughs> and they thought that, you know, all these missions to Mars are actually sending humans there. So that's, I just want to say that out, out loud, there are no humans on Mars right now, and we haven't sent any in the past, any time. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's, that's one of the big ones, I think. Um, that's funny. So if we, if we were to segue a little bit, uh, mm -hmm. you know, being a young, ambitious Emirati woman, how do you sense the significance of lending your voice and promoting gender equality in STEM fields? That's an interesting question, especially because growing up in the UAE, if anything, I mostly interacted with women, especially as a science student. The, the people that I would interact with and the people that I would see in science are all women. Um, and there was at, at some point, you know, a significant like lack in men that they were trying to encourage more men to enroll in more science courses. Um, so that kind of gave me a unique perspective, especially when I went abroad um, and was involved in science conferences with the rest of the scientific community, the international scientific community, and saw how um, underrepresented women are, it gave me this unique perspective in that, you know, it, it is a possibility, you know, that we have equal representation and things can go equally as smoothly because I've witnessed that growing up. Um, so I, I'm, humbled and I'm honored that I can be used as an example um, that women have a place in science and they can contribute meaningfully towards science. Um, so that's kind of where I stand on that topic. Yeah, no, it's, it's great that you, that you pointed that out because, you know, most Western countries have the exact opposite of, you know, some of the countries we have here in the GCC. So for example, you know, the Emirates position is, is very different to, let's see, what the situation is like in the States. Uh, mm -hmm. And so oftentimes when you speak to people from abroad, they don't understand how, you know, how it's, how it's not the case. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's, it's great to be, uh, you know, leading by example, I guess. Yeah, yeah, very much. Amazing. All right. Well, I always you know, or, or let's say I often ask this to my guests because I'm interested to know if, you know, if, if you came across any mentors, if you still keep, with, keep in touch with them, and if there are any specific space heroes or, you know, just STEM heroes in general that you personally look up to. That's a great question. Um, I, this answer is always the same, no matter how the question is phrased because my father is my ultimate like role model when it comes to my science career and my direction in that aspect. Um, he is now retired, but was a physical chemist and a professor of physical chemistry. Um, and he is one of those, his story is one of those stories of our ancestors who, or our, our fathers and forefathers who did things at a time when it was really difficult to do things because the UAE wasn't founded yet. And we didn't have access to like, just like I did growing up, 
my father didn't have access to um, the the resources for studying and um, completing his degrees that I do. So he spent a good chunk of his life just trying to become a scientist when circumstances were not so easy for him to become a scientist. So he traveled to Germany, um, learned the language, got his undergrad degree, his master's, his PhD, then proceeded to teach in German, um, came back to the UAE, and I think was one of the first uh, one of the first professors in the UAE. So he's very inspiring to me in that sense of against all odds, just chasing science. And that's kind of my motto in life, just chasing science, regardless of what's going on around. I love that. Absolutely love that. And I'm, I'm so glad you shared that personal story because again, you know, <laughs> it depends on who you ask, but sometimes it would be someone, you know, like let's say Elon Musk or, you know, anyone else, but it's important to also look, look close, you know, mm-hmm. and, and see who it is that, you know, that you are inspired by on the daily because mm-hmm. you see a live example of, of him or her doing the work and, and setting up a great example for yourself. So I'm so glad that you shared that. And, um, you know, I think it's, it's beautiful that you put it that way. I think the, um, the, the importance of, of parents and having them there as a constant source of inspiration, I think it's very, very, very important. Yes. Yeah, it really is, especially for me and how I connect to my father in that sense. So, yeah. That's great. I love that. Thank you. So I, I want to share, uh, you know, recently we did an online challenge for kids and it was called uh, Design Your Own Mars Colony. So we basically, as Clever Place, I'm a, I co-founded a, you know, a specialized uh, company in, in, in STEM and STEAM education for children. Mm-hmm. And we uh, partnered with Bahrain's uh, National Space Science Agency, the NSSA. Uh, in that particular endeavor. And, you know, it was really very cool to see the amount of interest and the level of participation from, you know, our our young uh, participants. So in that sense, I'm wondering how important is it to excite interest in in space science and generally in STEM as early as possible? I would say very important. Um, But don't discount the effect that that kind of inspiration can have on not on on students much later in their school years and also adults who have um, already graduated but have a strong sense of enthusiasm for this field. So yes, there's definitely so much um, potential that can come from inspiring uh, kids at such a young age and you build you plant that seed early on so they can like navigate their way to get to that goal uh, which is essential and um, definitely important and it's easier I guess um, when when they have that passion for it from the get-go because they make choices along the way that set them up to be involved later on in the future without too much trouble. Um, But I also really appreciate um, involvement of public outreach about science 
on all scales, you know, not just for kids, but, you know, even involving um, the community of people who are way past their education years and getting them involved as well. Yeah, so on, on that note, uh, specifically, and being, you know, a young female space scientist, how do you see yourself advocating for STEM education on a, you know, on a broader level, I suppose? Um, I'd like to think that having an example of someone who's doing what you're doing is motivation because that's how I view it. When I see, you know, another fellow woman scientist, I get excited and I feel like I belong. Um, especially when in the past three years that I've spent abroad, I need that reminder. So having seen that growing up back home and seeing all these awesome female scientists that are involved with Emirates Mars mission, for example, it, it, it's very encouraging and it feels like you're not just alone in this giant ocean <laughs> that is science. So I, I hope that um, my pursuing of science, along with all the other students that I know are also um, getting their education in different fields, not just astronomy and planetary science, um, is an inspiration or maybe encouragement for um, kids and students to uh, pursue a career in science, that it is an availability, that it is an option, that it's not just some far-fetched idea. Because from conversations that I've had with high school students in the past few years, I don't think many of them realize that you can become a scientist as a career option. Mm -hmm. um, I think they always, I remember I had this thought too, like even though I had a father who was a scientist, I always thought they just came out of the ether, like scientists suddenly exist. I didn't realize that there were steps to get there and that I had the option of taking those steps. So I hope that by my example and by other students who are also pursuing their PhDs and um, higher education degrees abroad, this can show students back home that this is an option for them to pursue. Fantastic. So as we, as we wrap up here, the last question I have for you is more about, you know, your personal ambitions and your own, your own goals, I guess. Do you have mm -hmm. any specific goals that you're currently chasing and, uh, and what are they? Yes, I do. And they kind of tie into everything that we've already talked about um, in that I would love to see the UAE and the Middle East in general flourish with science. It's, it's like a vision I have in my mind of what that would look like. And I've always hoped that in some way or another, my choices in life can help achieve that goal. So that's kind of like a very big, large, out of my control type of um, goal that I'm working towards. And then on a smaller scale, I would really love to be able to have the Middle East and specifically the UAE contribute meaningfully to space sciences. Because 
that's kind of like a step in that bigger goal direction. So definitely. And I can definitely see how they play out uh, together. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to get to one before you get to the other. So uh, absolutely love that you shared that with us. And, and with that, you know, I just wanted to say thank you so much uh, for making the time to speak to us today. Uh, lovely having you and hearing your story. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate the honor of being a guest and also the questions were very lovely. Thank you so much. Thank you. And before we close out, if any of our listeners wanted to get in touch with you directly, what would be the best way that they can reach you on? So the best way to reach me is through my Twitter account um, or my university email address for more specifically academic um, questions. And my Twitter handle is at Planetary Nora. And my email address is just my first and last name at colorado.edu. There you go. Scientists tweet as well. Yes. <laughs> Well, lovely having you, Nora. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for tuning in today. If you enjoyed this podcast, be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss out on any of our future episodes. Until next time.